welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Happy Friday, everyone. We're just so delighted that you could be with us today for what I think is a very um, timely and important topic to discuss. Um, And I want to welcome our guest. Um, And just as some reminders here, we've got um, our Friday Five Live content is available um, and easy to share. And Melissa's put that, we'll put that in the chat for us. Um, And we also have the link to today's PowerPoint slides should you want them as well. Um, As a friendly reminder, we really do love the chat functionality of Zoom. So feel free while I've prepared questions, of course, to guide our conversation today, we'd love to hear from you as well. So um, feel free, chat in, put in those questions. and, And don't worry, my job is to pay attention to the chat. So I'll just weave those right into our conversation. So no stress for you. Um, But I am just delighted to be joined today um, by Dr. Anne um, Kadamian, who is the executive director of the universities at Shady Grove, um, and uh, which I'm fascinated by this. uh, My master's degree is from College Park. And so I worked in college admissions there 22 years ago. And remember what Shady Grove was 22 years ago, and it has certainly changed in those ensuing decades quite a bit. Um, And love that you also have a connection to Virginia with uh, your time at Virginia Tech. I'm married to a Hokie, so you are very important people. Yes, very (laughs) important people. Um, And Anne is a nationally recognized scholar and author um, in the areas of inclusive leadership and organizational change. And Really what brought me um, to our conversation today was a fantastic piece that was in um, Higher Ed Dive. If you're not getting that newsletter, you know, I think it's a great one um, to really cover the topics that are going on in our our crazy world of higher ed. Um, And so you had a piece in August um, about kind of the nature, the fluid nature, I think is sort of the term that you used um, with regards to students. And so um, it it just, I I couldn't wait to have follow-up conversations. So I'm so honored um, that you would come and join us today. Thank you, Anne. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really excited for this conversation. And you know, and anytime we get a chance to talk about change and transformation in higher education and serving more students and really moving the equity promise forward, it's a good day. It's a good day. And, and to be able to use that energy to actually do the good work. So um, so did you want me to start with that first question about the fluid students? Yeah, I would love that, um, that you shared this term fluid students. And so I think uh, it was just an intriguing concept and would love it if you could define that for us. Well, if, if you don't mind, I'll tell a little bit of the story of how we got there. And um, I was uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts every morning as I walk. And I was listening to a podcast uh, that featured uh, Angela Ruggiero. She's a former mm-hmm. Olympic ice hockey champion. And um, she had gone to, you know, after her ice hockey career, she started working in sports and in the business side. She worked for the Olympic Committee for a while. Um, but she, you know, she was frustrated by this idea that, um, you know, only 4% of people, of fans really cared about women's professional sports. And so the sports innovation lab, which she created and leads is really focused on trying to understand the future of fandom, the future of sports, the future of sports fans, and who are they? And so their research has, um, identified this concept of the fluid fan. So rather than a traditional fan who, follows the same team year after year, their family did, their their kids will, 
buys the gear, season tickets, you know, watches on Sunday night, all of that. The fluid fan is much more fluid. Uh, they they follow on social media, not necessarily on TV. They you know follow on different platforms. They let, they create a lot of their own content. Um, a lot of them are very interested in the, you know, the um, the gambling opportunity as well. But there's a, a component of um, of uh, being interested in fan in sports because of the value premise of, of an individual athlete or a team. And so it's just a much more fluid experience. It's some in person, some online, some on social media, creating their own content and, you know, wanting virtual reality. And so this idea of a fluid fan redefining the business of sports it's not a huge leap to say, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, it's the same thing with higher education. We have traditional students who dream of going to a four-year university and go to a four-year university and pay to live, sleep, eat, learn, go to games, everything on that campus, become an alum, maybe give back to that campus, right? There's a notion that we have of a traditional campus and a traditional student. And it's a, it's a wonderful, um, exceptional thing that we do here in the United States, these traditional campuses. But the future is probably much more fluid. And in fact, if you look, I think the statistic is almost 74, 75% of students in higher education today are what we might say non-traditional in the sense that they have work responsibilities, they have family responsibilities, they may be first in their family to go to college. Uh, English may not be the first language in the family. They may be financing their own education. Their educational experience has got to be much more fluid. The possibility of going for four years to a single campus, many non-traditional students will, of course, persist and succeed in that in that setting. But for, for many students, it's just out of the question because of the time commitment, because of the other kinds of constraints that they face. And so we have to think differently. We have to think more like, how do we serve this more fluid student who may, be, who may need some education in order to get a credential, to get a better job, work some, come back to school, get another credential, stack up those credentials, get a degree, take some classes online, in-person, uh, hybrid, uh, really a lot of experiential learning opportunities combining that experience more closely with employers and employer engagement and experience. So for us, um, you know, I think it's also about looking at the value proposition of, of our students today and looking at the number of students who have left higher education during the pandemic. It's a million plus who have left and have added to the number of students who have left college. They have some college without a credential. That's a failure on our part. That's a huge failure on our part that we have students leaving higher education without a credential and oftentimes leaving with a lot of debt as well. So we have to think about how to embrace this fluidity and how to serve students uh, better. And I think that means new models. We have to think creatively about new models to serve the future fluid student. And I will say that I, what I like about this term fluid is that we use the term non-traditional. We use the term underserved students. We use the term first-generation students, um, but these all feel very ex like exclusionary terms in a lot oh. of ways, and I think they are. And I think that we need to be more holistic and inclusive about how we talk about the future. And I think if we can figure out how to serve a more fluid student, we're inclusively bringing in more and more students and creating more opportunities in higher education across the board. So I, I like that term because I think it's a much more inclusive term. It captures more of the broad experience of many, many students who mm -hmm. aspire to higher education. And I think if we can figure out that fluidity and how to serve students in that regard in an affordable way, I think we'll be doing a lot to move the needle on equity. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, that's that's a very, very different way, right, of thinking about how we deliver higher education in our country. And we're absolutely um and and higher ed is known for lots of wonderful things, but I don't know that we're always really fantastic at rapid change. Um which in my mind, this would require to, I, I think about, you know, the students I teach in a community college setting um, and they are many of these things. And sometimes faculty are frustrated by that, right? Like why do they have to work so many hours outside of school while well, they have to pay a mortgage, right? And um, as the young people, sometimes supporting grandparents, I mean, there's just the whole gamut there. So so this leads nicely kind of into this next question. How are we gonna begin to kind of do this work, right? Um, what are some recommendations you might have for us? Cause this is a very big thing to unpack. And I'm not, I don't, I know we're not gonna solve it in 45 minutes. Like. And we're not gonna solve it in 10 years either, right? I mean, it's it's going to take us some time to do this. And and I'm, I wanna be clear, I'm not saying we should not have traditional campuses and traditional, sure. I think, this is these are the these are the gems of U.S. higher education. You know, we have we serve we have nine university partners here at Shady Grove, and every single one of those campuses are incredible places doing incredible work. And I think that will always have to that will always be part of our higher education education mm -hmm. landscape. But we do need to figure out how to serve more students for whom for whom these opportunities are just not possible. And mm -hmm. and I think your I want to start with your comment. Where you said, you know, the frustration that, you know, faculty may have, well, why do they have to work so many hours and why can't they prioritize this? And I think we we have a mindset that is institution first. We lead with an institutional mm -hmm. mindset. And we really have to figure out what does it mean to center the student experience in a very different way. And yes, we want to we want to look out, for, you know, we, we need we have amazing faculty, we have amazing staff, we have, you know, absolutely, these are, you know, everyone is a priority. But I think if we really want to figure this challenge out, we need to radically rethink um, what it means to put a student at the center of the experience and think about their journey and how we do it. To me, it's a bit like, a, you know, process mapping or, you know, the yeah. analogy that I have I don't know how helpful this is, but if you think about, I, I grew up in the mall generation, right? Where, where, you know, you go to the mall to shop, right? And, and you, you, you they're intentionally designed to make you wander, right? <laughs> make you wander in Rome and, you know, the information boards aren't that helpful. You can see a list of, list of shops and things, but the print is small and you're not really sure if someplace will have what you need and mm -hmm. you wander around and you try to find what you need and you may ask for directions or you may ask for some help and assistance along the way. And um, you may have to park a mile away to get to the mall. And, you know, so that experience versus now today, there are all kinds of online opportunities where you can go online and get exactly what you need and it comes to your door. And if it's not what you need, you can send it back by mail mm -hmm. and it comes to your door. So um, maybe some people will miss that mall experience and wish we could go back, but we make students go to the mall for their education, right? We make mm -hmm. them, you know, traipse around and look for things and the information is small and, and we may give them a lot of support to make it through there. But why can't we just figure out this higher education puzzle from the perspective of like a consumer who needs a, a much smoother, more accessible, 
highly rigorous and highly, you know, a high quality, but a different kind of experience. So, and there are, there are places doing this. The Western Governors University is a really interesting example of a place that's mm-hmm. doing this. And, you know, so there's, so you asked about the recommendations. I think, I think there are a number of things we can do um, to start doing this. I think one of, one of it is really, you know, really liberate ourselves to be creative, you know, get ourselves in that space where we are really focused on the needs of, of students and and give ourselves time and space to do that. I think it's really important that leadership in higher education create the spaces for their teams to do this kind of work and to include students in this kind of work. Mm. I, I think we need to focus on pathways. We're not going to solve the access problem for higher education with better marketing of degree programs or universities. We have to look deeper into the student experience, especially the students, the more fluid students of today that we're trying to recruit. You know, there has to be information available. There has to be support available. There has to be an understanding of what options are and possibilities are, what kind of training and coursework you need in order to pursue certain types of careers or pathways. Mm -hmm. So higher education needs to partner with community colleges and with public schools businesses to be more holistic in how we think about the student experience. Uh, An example I have is El Paso, Texas. El Paso committed about 20 years ago to improving degree completion across public school, community college, and UTEP. And that commitment, that holistic thinking across across El Paso has resulted in phenomenal increases in student graduation rates, right? So we need to think holistically. We need to think across pathways. Here at Shady Grove, we're thinking about industry sector pathways around STEM, around healthcare, around um, public service, including teaching and social work and public policy, and also around business. So that's another thing I believe we need to do. We also need to work much more deeply with employers. I think there's always been a bit of a uh, love-hate relationship between academia and business. And sometimes that partnership takes the form of innovation around research and intellectual property and starting businesses. Sometimes it's around internships or hiring students as they graduate but we need to be much more inclusive in how we think about our partnership with business. Here in Montgomery County, every business leader I talk to, they want to have more of a say. They want to be more involved. They want to be part of something bigger to develop more talent that's critical for the economy. And so we have to figure out how to do that. It can't just be an open book of like, well, what do you want to do and what do you need? We in academia need to do some really serious thinking about where we need businesses help and how to start including business and making that engagement more seamless for businesses as well. How do we gather information about skills and what's coming down the pipeline? How do we set goals around, um, you know, delivering on employment, meaningful employment and sustainable wage careers upon graduation? How do we innovate? Uh, How do we make sure students are career ready? How do we make sure students have experiential learning and the support they need. All of those are areas for business engagement. And I think we need to be much more creative about that. We also have to just more aggressively support students with wraparound support. We have to be, you know, it's not just traditional student services. Many of our students are facing food insecurity. They're facing um, home insecurity, their housing insecurity. They they are dealing with, you know, maybe a single car in the family that breaks down from time to time. They're right. dealing with childcare, and so we need to think holistically about the kinds of support we can bring uh, to to our students. 
and make sure that it's available. And there's you know, layers of different kinds of layers of support that students and learners need, but we need to be thinking about that. And we also need to be thinking about career readiness. Uh, many employers report, you see this in the NACE surveys, rep employers report that, that new employees are not career ready. They don't have leadership training. They don't know how to work in a team. They don't have good communication, written or oral skills. Um, they may not be data literate. You know, there are a number of things that employers are looking for when, when a, an employee steps into the door. Mm -hmm. And we need to start build not only making that a co-curricular activity, but building that into our academic planning. Mm -hmm. So that in the course of getting a degree, there's exposure to leadership opportunities and team building opportunities and and all else that we can really track and measure. And that's the final thing I would recommend is let's make sure we measure and assess the impact of taking these steps. Um, and that drives innovation. Let's figure out how to measure meaningful employment and sustainable wage careers upon graduation. Let's do it at a big level. Let's do it at county levels, at city levels, at state levels. Um, you know, let's hold everyone accountable for how we deliver on that promise. Uh, every innovation we do, let's see how, how it's working. How are we supporting students? Where are the gaps? Where are the challenges? Where are students, um, you know, not succeeding or dropping out? And fix them, you know, and I think the only way we can do that is being real and being, um, you know, honest about our circumstances and um, and the challenges. We here at Shady Grove, we've set the promise, delivering on the promise is the heart of our strategic plan, which is every student upon graduation should have meaningful employment and building into a sustainable wage career. And we, you know, starting to measure that is really hard. It's not easy, especially since we have nine university partners and our students are graduating from those nine university partners and not necessarily from Shady Grove, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a coordination challenge. It's a data challenge. It's a relational challenge. There's all kinds of, but it shouldn't stop us from doing it. And so we need to we need to figure out how to do this. And and I, you know, I, I think it's just we have a number of partners across the university system of Maryland who have been innovative leaders in how to use data to continuously improve their service to students. UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County is an example of that real data-driven effort. And so I think we all need to embrace that in a big way, not just give lip service to it, but really honestly use the data to drive the work that we're doing and to improve our partnerships in serving students as well. I've taken pages of notes here, yeah, just, so, just so you know, this is also, and, and, you know, it ties in, in this kind of next question. So I have three children in um, a public school um, in our county and, and in these areas that you're talking about with regards to career readiness or things our county has really embraced, they kind of have a wheel um, and it's group work. Like our, our elementary school child is assessed on how well she does group work participates in that it's written in oral communication it's leadership development so i'm i'm pleased to see that you know our our county is really thinking about how are we getting graduating students who then have these skills yeah. that employers need and and i i'm just wondering so you know you've talked about umbc which is a a, a fantastic institution doing really important work and and I can say that as a College Park alum, you know, there's there's no shame in yeah. <laughs> acknowledgement. No. And, and that, that, I mean, that's the thing we have to we have to get past this too. Like right. so much of our mindset is driven by the excellence of individual institutions, and we are very focused on the uniqueness of each institution. And right. and that's that is beautiful, and it is fantastic, and it is all part of 
of the college experience, but there have to be spaces where we take those hats off. There have to be spaces where we are working more collaboratively and thinking more about the students we serve and less about our individual institutional identities as well. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't it's, interrupt you. But. No, I think that's such an uh, such an important point. And I do feel like uh, one of the positive things that in these conversations we've we've had on the podcast we're seeing is is some of that real breakdown. I feel like that there's because maybe because of the pandemic, there's been some real um, desire, an increased desire to say uh, how can how can you help me? How can I help you? What are Absolutely. what are models? Let me let me share these things that are going well, let me sh- be very honest about the challenges that we're having yeah. um, and how can we learn together, which I, I think is when we're doing our best work, right, in higher ed. I to- agree. We, we had, you know, the experience in the university system of Maryland throughout the pandemic has been one of growing collaboration and and just remarkable at the level of, you know, sharing across all levels, leadership, you know, the cabinet levels, you know, all, all staff. It's been a remarkable uh, collaborative effort in response to the crisis. And so I agree with you. I think we're at our best when we're collaborating. It doesn't mean we all have to meld or, or, or join. We can still keep those u- unique qualities. But as I said, there have to be those moments, those times, those areas and spaces where we do take off those hats and focus differently on, on the students, um, the, you know, serving this new fluid student. So as we're thinking about this new fluid student, and I think your words too about, um, you know, you're right, academia has often had this push-pull with the corporate world, right? Um, But ultimately, one of the things that we're supposed to provide is graduates who can go out and, you know, be workers in our our communities and um, hopefully um, positively engage civically as well and things like that. Are, are there models where you feel like institutions, uh, this is complicated work because it's working across systems, right? I mean, you're thinking county and local government, you're thinking corporations in our area, K-12 systems, higher ed, community colleges, four-year institutions. And you mentioned El Paso, and I'm intrigued. Now I'm going to go have to do more research on that. But are there other places that you're saying, this is someplace where I would turn to and recommend you look at them as a, as a resource or as a first place to begin thinking? I mean, there's a lot of great examples of pathway work that's underway. And mm-hmm. I think in part, it's a, it's a matter of scale as well. I mean, across the university system of Maryland, there are all kinds of pathway efforts underway to bring more students into areas of STEM, to give more students an opportunity. In Baltimore, there's a number of our partners are working on ways to bring more students who are traditionally underserved into areas of STEM and that experience, that exposure starting in middle school and on. Um, You know, we have a STEM ready pathway um, that we that we've built in partnership with UMBC that's here in Montgomery County and those students will for the first students in that pathway will be coming to USG soon. Um, you know, I mentioned El Paso because it's a countywide effort. So one one distinction I just want to make is that we use this term pathway pretty loosely and mm-hmm. pretty comprehensively. And I think anything that is you know, that shows a journey for a student or shows a way for a student um, is used this way. And so there are a lot of examples of different kinds of pathways. I think, I don't know of many that are 
kind of the scale that we're talking about right now. And so, you know, you'll see at College Park at your alma mater, there's an academy, a high school academy that works closely with College Park for students to you know, make a pathway into College Park. And I mentioned you uh, in Baltimore, some, some examples. And we have, a, we have a pathway in Montgomery County called ACEs, Achieving Collegiate Excellence and Success, which focuses on um, students who are traditionally underserved, who uh, might not be thinking about going to college, but they get coaching and support in high school. They move on to Montgomery College, where they also continue coaching and support and advice. And they move on to USG, where they can get a, their bachelor's degree from one of nine universities. Um, you know, with uh, with a lot of support along the way. Mm-hmm. So that's a pathway focused on students who have a lot of high priority needs. Um, other pathways are focused on content areas, you know, mm-hmm. business analytics or something else. So, so they're examples, but I think, you know, in order to do this at scale, in order mm-hmm. to really do this in a way that starts to shift our practices in higher education, because I think a lot of these pathways almost reinforce the traditional model. You know, it's huh. it's students en route to a traditional education. Mm-hmm. And again, that's beautiful. And I hope we can do as much of that as we possibly can, but we need other options as well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, thinking about a pathway that, um, yes, it may take you, you know, t- to a degree, all kinds of possibilities, but the end goal is not only a degree, but meaningful employment upon graduation. So that means working not only with your academic partners, in our case, Montgomery County Public Schools and Montgomery College and other community colleges in the region, our nine university partners here at Shady Grove as well, but business, you know, working with business, uh, working with the county government, you know, others. So El Paso stands out in my mind as a really interesting uh, example. Um, you know, there, there are other places that are doing pieces of all this in really mm-hmm. uh, fantastic ways. You know, schools, community colleges in Texas that are, have got this wraparound support for students um, really have it down and are doing an amazing, you know, Amarillo uh, Community College stands out for me as a, as a wonderful example. There are places in New Mexico that are facilitating the student pathway by institutions doing more administrative coordination around the student experience and around the student mm-hmm. files and applications. And so coming together to support student records and, and information about the students in the center while you know, making that information for students and the experience for students smoother. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways that people are defining pathways, different ways they're tackling them, different ways they're making them possible. And I think there are some very creative ideas out there I, I think the point I want to make is that we have to take this to the next level. And that starts with centering the student experience in a very different way and really understanding that student experience. And, and also, um, you know, thinking about it holistically in a bigger picture in a way that connects us to business because the end, the end result that we want to get to is meaningful employment, right? Sustainable wage careers, community wealth building. Like that's where we want to get. And so that kind of big picture thinking, I think, is you don't see as much of that. Now, I will say there are some states where the transfer process is much smoother and much more articulated because the state has put some mandates into place. Florida, for example, the 
you know, the community college, the, even the course numbers, you know, like across public institutions are the same. So there's no doubt about what transfers and what doesn't. And, you know, there's more of a standardized approach to how they think about these processes. So, so some pathways are facilitated by state regulation. Some pathways are facilitated by the innovation of a home campus working with high schools. Mm-hmm. Some are facilitated by community college uh, and university partnerships. Some are facilitated by the administrative side of the student experience. You know, I think there's lots of ways you can think about this and some amazing examples out there. Mm -hmm. I'm just pushing us to think a little bit different, push beyond graduation and, um, and, and really, let's really try to center the student experience in a very different way to think about what our institutions need to look like in order to accomplish that. And I think it's going to take a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity and a lot of trial and error to get there. I don't think we know how to do this very well. We've got a lot of things in in mind. We have a lot of interesting examples, but it's going to take some testing and piloting. And I'd like to see the universities at Shady Grove, which is where I'm based, we're a regional higher education center in the University System of Maryland. So nine different universities offer 81 programs here at Shady Grove. What better place to leverage the power of nine university partners than right here on one campus? And what better place than a place that serves these very fluid students um, and always has from the day we were created 21 years ago. So I think we need to really intentionally try to figure some of this out uh, with new models in partnership with business um, as well. So I want to come back to this this theme of being um, of centering the student experience and 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 it's such an I I am so lucky that I get to do this because um, this has been a major theme in every conversation I feel like I've had this year in our podcast um, and in fact we had John Donnelly on in September talking about what does it take to be um, a student ready campus which in a lot of ways is is very thematically kind of this idea of centering students. How 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 are you going about kind of exploring what does that mean for your center for if that makes sense? How are we gathering the data on what does that look like at the universities of Shady Grove versus Montgomery County Community College? Yeah, well, I think MC Montgomery. Montgomery College does a great job of doing this too. I mean, they're very dedicated to this as mm-hmm. well. They it. really are. I think I think there are some things that we're doing, and I think there's a lot of things that we need to be doing. So it's as much a challenge to us as to anyone as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of it is just the centrality of the student voice in a lot that, in all that we do. Um, our student council here has always been a very prominent voice, of feedback, and, and insight on what we're doing. We've reorganized our student council. Our our team here is reorganized our the students to be the student leadership advisory council mm-hmm. and they are giving input now across the industry sectors that we're you know thinking about the student experience mm-hmm. their pathway according to the sectors the degree programs that they're in and what that looks like so really centering the student voice and doing more and more of that um, there's going to be you know uh, we do a lot of surveys of our students and their in mm-hmm. their experience and um, another way that we do it here is um, direct experience. So many of our employees here at Shady Grove have been through the pathway. They've come through Montgomery County Public Schools, they've gone to Montgomery College, and then they've come to Shady Grove. And either they got a job as a student here or they came back, but that experience is so valuable. And many of our many of our employees are working in 
you know, student affairs or in other parts of the parts of the um, the campus. Uh, one, one of our um, one of our team members is working in the executive director's office. She was a she was she was took the student pathway. She came came through this, and she's still working on her master's now. And this, you know, her insight, her experience is so valuable for us. So sometimes it's trying to bring as many people into what we're, our decision-making and the work we're doing who have been through the pathway, who have experienced it, who understand it. I think this is also um, really important as well. Um, but I think, you know, just as just as Amazon does deep dive research on their customers 24 seven, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be, under, be able to understand the student experience. And I think it also means shifting from a data focus that has traditionally been very demographic Mm-hmm. And and to one that's more behavioral and mindset oriented and experiential oriented as well. So, what are students doing? What are they saying? Where are they starting? Where are they stopping? Whether, you know, so really building out a research program. I think that a lot of this work needs to be done as we create the pilots for pathways, as we create the components to to build stronger pathways. When I say that, I'm, I'm, you know, yes, there's, we've got to make sure that students can get from point A to B to C and all the transfer in there. But there's also the mentoring piece. There's the the coaching piece. There's the um, internship piece. There's, you know, there are all these pieces along the way that we have to build as well to make a strong pathway. And I think as we build those different pieces, measuring, assessing as we go along, getting the student voice hearing what they're looking at their experience, looking at their behavior in that in that process is really important. This is also a lesson from Angela Ruggiero, who I mentioned at the beginning. Sure. The Sports Innovation Lab, you know, they they were looking at a lot of the traditional data and research on fans was very demographic, age, location, mm-hmm. income, different things. And their research was very focused on what are fans doing? What are they doing? How are they behaving? You know, and and that that was transformative in their ability to understand the future. And I think we need to be able to start orienting our research more towards understanding that experience and the behavior that you know, of students in the in the process, so that we can better serve and meet and 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 support them. Uh, I saw. I'm I'm going to say this. I'm not going to remember the name of the the company. It's a. Um, ugh, I'm going to blank on it. Accenture, or it's a it's a consulting company in higher ed, and they shared at a I read about this in Inside Higher Education. They they shared this uh, approach to thinking about mindsets in um, in higher education. So students, it's not necessarily a demographic exercise. Students learn differently. You know, some students learn well sitting in class and taking tests. Other students, you know, so there's different kinds of mindsets and, and they shift across the lifelong learning spectrum. And so the argument was, let's focus more on mindsets and less on the demographic data. And the slide that just is so interesting is they had, they share this slide in the article of um, uh, Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, uh, and Ozzy Osbourne. And demographically, they're very similar people. They live in a castle, they you know, age and all things. But as individuals, they're very, very different people, right? And they have different. So the point is, how do we get to that point where we can understand mindsets and learning learning styles and experience uh, along the way as well? So I just share that as a way to, I think there's a lot of new ways we have to think in order to, mm-hmm. to capture this and to get to that point. So I love that illustration. I mean, King Charles and Ozzy Osbourne, holy moly. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And we've had a great question from Joan who's chatted in. How can faculty support non-traditional students and any advice regarding instructional practices or classroom strategies um, that we can use? I think that's a fantastic question. We learned so much during the pandemic about ways to do things differently. And I really appreciate Joan for asking that question. You know, um, we here at Shady Grove in in, you know, maybe it was 2021 or 2020. You know, in February, in the middle of winter, we had students sitting in our parking garage in their cars so they could access the Wi-Fi, right? And so I think, you know, an awareness of our student situations and an awareness of, you know, do you have access to good Wi-Fi? Do you have a quiet place to study? Can, you know, can you? So as we think about as we think about how we build our courses and you know the guidelines and the expectations for courses and things, you know, give some thought to that experience. And you know, are there uh, should, are there ways to be more flexible in terms of how we, you know, the, the timelines, the grading, um, this is something that faculty don't necessarily control, but something that Western Governor University does. There's no timeline on classes. When you're able to pass the class, you're able to move on and you're not held to wait an entire semester to do that as well. So, you know, are there ways that we can, we can, um, you know, encourage students to take their, you know, make their own pace and, and not lose credit along the way. And um, so, but I think mostly it's, you know, it's an awareness of our students' experience, access to Wi-Fi, quiet places to study, you know, the timing of classes, all of these things are really, um, really essential. The more inclusive we can make um, the, the more inclusive we can make our classrooms, uh, the better. There's some fantastic work going on uh, at the University of North Carolina uh, with some uh, uh, faculty who are thinking deeply about inclusive instruction mm -hmm. and, you know, the, what we need to take into account, how, you know, the words we use, the, um, you know, the, the expectations that we set. And I think if we can make the more inclusive we can make our classrooms and how we learn, the, the more phenomenal that experience will be for everyone. So I, I think I believe deeply that the more the more we break down barriers. Uh, so whether someone has, uh, you know, has a, um, you know, they don't hear as well or they don't see as well or they have, you know, they have different they're on the spectrum or however, you know, whatever our challenges are that we bring to the table, a classroom that can accommodate um, broadly everyone is a classroom where amazing learning will take place. And so I think that challenge of as instructors, as teachers, as professors, thinking more deeply about how we can increasingly make our classroom inclusive, that will serve our students, I think, in, in, in phenomenal ways. Such, it's interesting, last month, um, I got to talk with Central Piedmont um, community college that's doing some of that very work around um, cultural, culturally sensitive um, teaching practices, which really get at the heart of, of inclusive learning environments. So um, Joan, feel free to, I, I, I like to think that our podcasts pair nicely with a walk or a cup of tea, so coffee. Um, so I encourage you to listen to that one. And, you know, I always think universal design for learning is a great foundational place to begin um, the work of, of building inclusive space. V, VG, Dr. VG Sathy is one of the authors of this book that I'm thinking of from North Carolina as well. That's a, that's a, a really excellent um, resource as well. Well, thank you for that. So to kind of wrap up and, and feel free, Joan, thank you for your question. And if others have, uh, we can, and for just a few, a few more minutes now, um, 
if there's anything that our listeners could do next semester to better position themselves to support fluid students. And I think you touched on this with this idea of, you know, thinking about how we're creating inclusive learning spaces, thinking about the entire student experience. And I, I know that's complicated work. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I teach in a variety of different modes and I teach a variety of students. So I very much appreciate the challenge of that. But is there anything that you would really recommend we prioritize as we think about next, the spring semester? I think as institutions, as departments, as colleges, creating the time, take the time to map out and think together about the student experience. You know, whether you're looking at admissions and enrollment or whether you're looking at that, you know, the first 90 days are vulnerable, hard days for a lot of new students, especially non-traditional students. You know, take some time to really process map that out and do it together. Uh, I was at a, a Chronicle of Higher Education conference yesterday and uh, Dr. Bridget Burns was there sharing um, advice for all of us on how to be more innovative. And this idea of process mapping is something that she practices with, with universities. And I think it's it's really taking the time to build your own awareness about that experience. You know, focus on some component of the student experience, you know, whether it is admission to your school or those first 90 days or, you know, a STEM class or whatever it is. But I think that process of giving yourself the space and time to think about that experience at your own institution. Um, and then from that, what you can do to make that experience more positive and supporting, because I think there are different experiences across all. So, so that would be my first recommendation is take the time to do this. And I think this is one of our biggest challenges here at Shady Grove is everybody's busy. Everyone's spread really thin. Everyone's wearing a million hats. Everybody's tired after, after the pandemic. But some of the most generative, inspiring work we do is when we all pause and we stand at the whiteboard and we dig in on a, on a, a question that's, that's really important about how we serve our students. And so that's one recommendation I would have is really take the time to think about it, make it a priority. Um, otherwise, it's not, it's not going to be a priority. You know, the, the next report you got to do or the next class you got to teach, everything is always going to be the priority. So give yourself time to do that. Um, and then I think also... You know, I think every institution should be reaching out to the schools around them, to the partners around them, whether they're community colleges or public public schools, um, and asking how can we do this better together and start those conversations if you're not already having them now. And I think leaders need to make this a priority. I think it, it has to start with leadership. Uh, probably most uh, most of most leaders would be surprised at how much coordination collaboration is actually ongoing across different institutions, um, but really prioritizing it and lifting it up um, and making it, you know, getting to that point where you can start do more than just what you're doing, but what you're doing together with another institution to serve the future fluid student, I think is a, another step we can all take. I love that. And I think we need to celebrate that work. Like I, I think sometimes we're very guilty in higher ed of, of not sharing enough about look at what we're doing collaboratively. Um, and, and I think that would do some good to repair some of the, you know, as we're seeing all this question about, is there a return on investment, right? If Should I send my child to college? Should I start college? But if we say, look at how we work together. Yeah. And that would, would go a long way towards. Absolutely. And and how how do we, as you said, call it out, lift it up and 
reward it. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of things in higher education that detracts from this kind of work because of the way, you know, even research, collaborative research, we're getting better at this, but there's still a lot of emphasis put on single authored articles and individual scholarship. And, you know, we need to be thinking about how to incentivize and reward people for thinking and behaving collaboratively. As long as our institutions are aimed at individual excellence, as opposed to you know, what we can accomplish together, we're not going to, we're not going to move the needle on this very well either. If, if there's just a moment, uh, for years, I studied this group called the East St. Louis Action Research Project, which was a partnership between the University of Illinois and the city of East St. Louis. And um, it was really aimed at trying to take the resources of the university in support of the ideas and the innovations and the and the interests of the people of East St. Louis, where at the time, this is in the 80s, the, the um, unemployment rate was over 30%. You know, the city had stopped collecting trash because it was out of money. I mean, it was, the city was really in dire straits. And so this partnership was really focused on bringing faculty and students together, working hand in hand with neighborhood groups, everything to plan and to change things. But one of the biggest obstacles to this project was the incentives that faculty had on the home campus because they weren't being rewarded for the kind of hands-on application of their research you know, in East St. Louis. Um, they were being rewarded for very different kinds of work and research. And so a lot of the work was how to change those systems. A lot has changed since then. But I think that this is also you know, thinking about what we reward. This is your point, Meg. You know, how we reward and lift, lift up this work is really important as well. And thank you so much. I just, you've sparked so many thoughts um, and, and I'm just really, really grateful for the time, your time today. And also your reminder that we need to, you know, celebrate the good work we're doing. Um, and I, I, I find our podcast is an important place that we can remind one another that we're doing good work that makes a difference. Um, and we really need to hear those messages. Um, I'm, next, this is queued up beautifully. Next month, um, I'm talking to Dr. Um, Hannah Lair from um, the Community College Research Center um, about guided pathways um, and her research. So I feel like you've just teed it up very nicely um, for our December conversation. So I hope people will join us on the 9th of December for that conversation as well. Well, thank I look you forward, so yeah, I look forward to tuning into that as well. And I just want to thank you, Meg, for inviting me. It was a really special invitation and I feel really privileged to have had the chance to talk with you and members of the audience. So thank you. Well, um, I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. I hope there's time for rest and renewal and um, a good Thanksgiving season too. And thank you so much. Take care and be well, everyone. Bye-bye. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.